we're, uh, you know, I'm getting kind of close to finishing up Exodus, even though I, I'm, I'm looking at Exodus 34, 35 tonight. Maybe thirty, yeah, thirty-four and thirty-five. But remember when we did the tabernacle back in, um, I don't know, a couple months ago? We spent three or four weeks looking at the tabernacle. I, I kind of, I mentioned that there's a there's a big chunk towards the end of Exodus where they where where God where God describes the tabernacle in detail, and then there's uh, some other things for a few chapters, and then the the end of uh, Exodus is the, it's, it's really very similar to the description of the tabernacle, but it's just the, the fact that they're building it. So, so it goes through a lot of the, the same details in the tabernacle, and I'm not gonna go, uh, I'm not gonna go through all that twice. Um, so I kinda covered that once for both, both of those areas, and I'm just gonna kinda say a few things here about, uh, uh, just a few things that, uh, that jump out at me at some of these verses, some of the things here between 34, 35, and I'm not sure how far I'll get tonight, but, <clears throat> so that's my plan, and, uh, won't be long before we start Leviticus, so, um, alright. Let's, uh, I'm gonna read a couple verses here just to start off in, Exodus 34:10 It says, "And he said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as has have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom <clears throat> you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite." Take heed to yourself, lest take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot um, with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods, and, and, and it goes on. Well, I just, you know, we're going to really get into this uh, in, in much greater detail, um, I think, Starting in Joshua, um, and then, well, in Deuteronomy too, we'll, we'll have to talk a lot about the land because the whole book of Deuteronomy is about preparing to abide in the land and live in the land and remain there and not be cast out from it. But, um, and then we'll get into it a lot too when we're talking about David and the kings and the land too. All of that, we're going to talk about that. But just since it mentions it here and it says one of the, 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 the principal things that are so clearly so uh, important in the mind of the Lord, I thought I'd mention it. The thing that he says here, well, let me, let me take one step back. The land as, um, I don't remember how much we've talked about it in this class versus other places. I know we've talked, I talked about it a lot in various other contexts, but the, one of the most important things to understand about the old, about the, well, this is a whole class in types and shadows, that the, 
the the first the first covenant the first uh uh creation the first man the first the law the figures and symbols the shadows the prophecies the promises all of that was pointing all of that was external all of that was natural or supernatural and it was temporal pointing to that which is internal and spiritual and eternal and the land is an is an incredibly important if you just think that that land had to do with a a geographical location in the, i mean i know it di- it did physically speaking have to do with a very specific geographical location in the middle east but if that's all that it is to you when you read through the old testament you're missing out something really really vital and what is it that's so vital well the, the la- it's the reality that that land is a very specific it paints a picture of and all of the all of the scriptures that have to do with that land and what happens in that land that land is a God-given uh, description, picture, illustration of the the eternal dwelling place of God, the the territory, the environment, the uh, really the soul, the spirit-born soul of man, in which God establishes His seed. And increases his kingdom and destroys all flesh and takes down uncircumcision and brings down high places and idols and reveals his king and fills the land with his law and his priesthood and all of that and, and more. Uh, and, and brings forth a harvest of his seed a hundredfold and all of these different pictures that are happening all throughout the Old Testament in this land are all pictures of of what God desires to do in the true inward spiritual and eternal territory that he purchased by the blood of his by the blood of his son which is you can say that land is uh uh in some really I think the the best way to say it the more the most comprehensive way to say it is to say that the land is this speaks of this relationship this union of life between the soul of man and, and the resurrected uh, Christ and in, in some in some pictures uh the, the land is a picture kind of of us coming we come into Christ who is the promised land who is the land of flowing with milk and honey the the land uh that where we inherit things we did not build or drink from wells we did not dig but actually actually in the in the majority of the um in the majority of the pictures in the Old Testament, the land is being looked at from kind of, it's the same relationship, but it's looked at from a different perspective. It's kind of like Christ in me and I'm in Christ. Which one is it? Well, they're both true. They're both part of the exact same relationship, but, but there, but there's, there's significant realities involved in both. It's still one union. It's one living union between the soul and the spirit of God. And, and yet, uh, I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. And in, in the same way, you could say, that we come into the land and find rest in that land and 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 yet the 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 king of that land or the seed of that land is is also bringing about his own increase and his own glory and his own kingdom in that land and so the land really <clears throat> is in this in this picture here that we're looking at in Exodus 34 it, it the way that God describes it is the 
It's the spirit-born soul of man. It's the redeemed. It's the purchased soul of man. It's the territory. It's the environment. It's the it's the place. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. But I'm looking for a place where I can eternally dwell, and that is in the soul of man. You are the temple of God. You are the land for His kingdom. And 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 we talk about all the all the time. But it just this is just. what he describes right here in Exodus 34, he just hits it and goes on, but is, is what I consider kind of like the, it's the key, so to speak, um, to understanding the kingdom of God. What, what, what is the key? Well, the key is the, the key is the fact or the reality that the, the land is given to a very specific seed, a very specific kind, a very specific life that does not, that cannot, that will not mix with the seed that is already in the land. That is, that is paramount. And, and that is, and, and that, I mean, how many stories are there? How many different, uh, books of the, of the Old Testament are there where that is, that is the primary thing the whole book is about? That's the whole thing, for instance, the book of Joshua is about. That's the whole, that's, that's makes up a huge chunk of the warnings that are going on in Deuteronomy before they enter into the land. I mean, the whole thing is this just constant warning not to mix that the seed which is Christ, the seed which is a totally new seed, born out from Egypt, born out from death, born of, a, of the Spirit in types and shadows, but nevertheless, that's what it's speaking of. That that seed, that seed which God plants in the human soul, that seed does not. It must increase. It must have victory. It will d- devour its enemies. It will chase them out with a hornet. It will increase and have and have its a kingdom established in the soul. But it will not. It does not mix with the seed that is already in the land. That's like the, in my heart, that is the number one rule of the kingdom of God. Or I don't know, top. Five. I don't even know what the other four are, but I mean, just one of the things that, if you ask me, what's like the one of the, the first thing that comes to your mind when you're when you're thinking about the kingdom of God, it's that that very thing. His increase is our decrease, and our increase is his decrease in that land. That and that's again, that's what you see in the book of Judges, where the spirit of God prevailed in Israel. Philistines were destroyed, the boundaries of the seed of Israel enlarged. When when Israel did not walk by faith, where the Spirit of God, where the, where the God of Israel was forgotten, they didn't just draw up nice happy little boundaries and, and live side by side. There was always a decrease, an oppression, a slavery, a, a oppression that came upon Israel until they grumbled and groaned and cried out to God and the Spirit of God would raise up another judge and there would be more. The, the judge never, you never ever see the Spirit of God fall upon a judge for those 400 years or whatever. You never see the Spirit of God fall upon a judge and have the judge say, well, the Spirit of the Lord is really uh, leading me to make peace with the people in this land or to make a treaty or to figure out a way that we can work this out, you know, game of chess or something like that, you know, where we can kind of stop this oppression and get, get along with our neighbors. That was never what was happening. 
uh, and, and the reason is not because, uh, well, not for any of the, the, the reasons that, that man ascribes to God as being angry or being whatever. The reason is that, that God knows, the reason is that the shadow has to align with the substance. The reason is that the picture, the illustration, the promise, the type, the figure always is painting a picture of and has to therefore align with the spiritual the spiritual reality. And so one of the most vital things that God tells Israel. I mean and and I you know I mentioned a couple books but what what is think about like um Ezra and Nehemiah you read those books. What's the big deal? What are they making? What's the huge sin that causes uh, Nehemiah to rip out his hair and sit down in his beard and sit down on the ground astonished? It's because Israel has once again intermarried with the wrong seed, has mixed the seed. That's what's going on in, what's going on in Ezra. There's these huge... Um, and and somewhat cumbersome to read, but these huge genealogy type things where everyone is making sure that if you're going to be part of Israel, you are from the right seed. And all of that is so, it's so essential, not because of the bloodline itself, but because of the picture it paints of the fact that in this land, it is Christ all in all. And it's not Christ fixing us. It's not Christ making a better version of us. It is not Christ mixing with us where the best of me and the best of Christ commingle in, in my soul. It is a, it is a death. It is a judgment. It is a removal. It is a chasing out, driving out, crushing, scattering. The language is always very strong, like you see in this, in this little passage here. Utterly destroy, break, kill everything that breathes, drive out. That's the, that's the kind of language that you see whenever God is talking about what to do with the seed, the kind, the flesh. The uncircumcised flesh that Israel finds in the land. Don't marry it. Don't make treaties with it. Don't, don't, don't worship their gods. Don't, don't mingle in any way. Don't play the harlot. All these different ways that any way he could possibly say have, have nothing to do with it. And that is because with, with the advance of the flesh in the heart, the kingdom of God, is made to retreat. And with the advance of the kingdom of God in the heart, the flesh is always cut off, crucified, buried with Christ, left in the grave. And the two do not mingle together except in the, the darkness of our unrenewed mind where we cannot see the difference. So uh, that's just something that since since it's right there, he just mentions it for you know eight or ten verses here, and then he goes on. He's kind of hitting some highlights of the of the law again here, and then um, and then Moses comes down the mountains. So let's read this. Let's get into this part here, and we'll get into. There's going to be so so much of uh, several several books that are going to have to do with all the specific things that God brings in. God has so much to say about this land. And, and it's really tragic that um, that so many people today 
still think that he was talking about a natural, I mean, the, the main point, he was talking about a natural land, but he was using that natural land like he used a natural temple, like he used a natural sacrifice, like he used a natural Egypt, like he used a natural everything to, to point to a spiritual and eternal reality that we have to know. And it, it's tragic that, um, that all of this, this whole host of different activities and descriptions and wars and increases and victories and decreases and all these different things that happened in the land that we we attribute that still to this day to natural things which is which is unfortunate um okay moses's face so a little on in this chapter a little later down in 29 um let me just read a little bit of this, a few verses here. Now, now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would only come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. All right. Well, um, this is just an interesting story, and it's one that, uh, like so many different stories, there, there's a place in the New Testament where, um, where Paul is he he picks up this this story and talks about what it was speaking of, what it was pointing to, and this this story shows us that man. The, the the Jews of Moses' day, the, the Judaizers of Paul's day who were holding on to the weak and worthless elements of the first of and or or the or they're the religious minded of our day. It doesn't matter who it is, those who have a form of godliness and yet will not look directly into the face, will not actually draw near to the to the to the face or to the light, uh, that that's that's what's going on here. Man will not look through. Generally speaking, the, despite all of his claims to the contrary, man's heart does not usually want to look through the veil and behold the substance. From the very beginning, right after the fall, man has always hidden from light. Man has self-consciousness, self-love, self-consciousness, self-preservation. That is the motivation of that natural man. And man has hidden from true light. Man has hidden from God, both uh, both to, to look a certain way before God or think that they do or before others or, or just before before himself. He doesn't want to face the light that Jesus describes in John chapter 3, the light 
that shows that man's deeds are evil, the light that you can't approach without being exposed as being that wrong seed, that wrong kind, as being the uncircumcised flesh that the cross needs to cut down. That's what the light shows you. Man wants to, man has always wanted to, live according to his own knowledge of good and evil. Man wants to live as it says in uh, the last verse in Judges and all throughout Jeremiah, man man likes to live according to what is good in his own eyes. That's what he does, and or, or what he what he thinks is his own will, which has really been, as Paul says, taken captive to serve another. But man's heart prefers to be a law unto himself doing what is right in his own eyes. And and the light of Christ, see, the light of Christ does not permit that. The light of Christ exposes exposes everything. First of all, it exposes that your soul is a slave to the nature of sin. It shows, let's just read that verse in um, John chapter 3, because that's on my mind now that I'm talking about this. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God or some translations say wrought in God. That's what the light shows you. It shows you the difference between two sources. It shows you the difference between two roots. It shows you the incredible contrast between two men. It's like what what God, uh, what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do. That the Spirit is coming, he will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin is a nature. Sin is a man. Sin is a kind. Righteousness is a nature. It's the nature of Christ that can work in the soul. Judgment is the division between the two, the complete separation of the two. You have sin on one side, judgment or righteousness on the other side, and judgment running down right through the middle, which is a cross. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And, and if you, if you approach that light, it shows, it, it shows everything from God's perspective. He sees just those two sides. He sees two men. He relates to all people in two men. And those who continue to follow the light out of the one man, out of the condemnation, out of Egypt, and and stay in the light and learn to abide in the light, then those ones become doers of the word. They become sons of the light. They become living expressions of that light. And it's obvious to them and to God that what they do is wrought in God. It's It has God as its source, as its substance. It is It flows out from him. Those that, those that do not, those that stay in the darkness, though they most often, all, almost always say that what they do is what is right in their own eyes. Almost nobody lives according to what is wrong in his own eyes. But unfortunately, what makes it right or wrong isn't what we think. It's The problem is the own eyes thing. The problem is doing what we think is right in our own eyes. 
because the light shows those eyes to be dark. Remember that that's that thing that Jesus said: if the if the eye is clear, then light comes in and fills the whole body. But if the eye is bad, if the eye is unclear, then then the darkness that is inside is so great. How great is the dark? The light that the thing that you call light, the thing by which you walk and live and move. Is darkness, and how great is that darkness? Well, that's what that's what that light exposes. Man wants to be a light unto himself, and 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 he prefers he prefers first of all to be a, to, to be his own law, and yet if he has to relate to God, if he knows there's a God, if he confesses that there is a God, well then he prefers an outward law rather. Than an inward shining law that is God's own light, because with an outward law you can at least look at it with your own mind and interpret interpret it according to your own will, and and that see that's what the Jews wouldn't look past. They wouldn't look that God had given them all of these, had given them all of these pictures and and descriptions and tabernacle and sacrifices and and written laws and requirements. And, and they would, they would interpret, they would relate to those things. All of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day, they loved those, they loved those things and they clung to them, but they would not look through that veil to the one that was the source, the light, the thing out from which all of those testimonies came. And by clinging to those things, without seeing through them like a window, they were refusing the the actual glory itself they were they were clinging to the testimonies of glory and refusing to look at the face to look right at the light to look at the brightness of what was what was casting all of those shadows you see man prefers man has always preferred some kind of veil because it 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 keeps you out of that bright light that exposes everything according to God's perfect view that keeps you away from his eyes which are flames of fire flames of fire that both give light and consume what is dross that's what man hides from and so man does not want to to and again I say despite his his claims to the contrary because everybody would say that they Everyone, everyone likes to talk about the light, but they, but they unknowingly keep a safe distance from it. They like to, they like to call Jesus the light, or they like to call the Bible the light, or they like to sing songs about God giving them light or being a light unto their path, but they keep a, they keep a safe distance from that substance, that face that is the end of or when I say end I mean the goal I'm using the language now from second Corinthians which I'll get to here in a second but that that light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ is the the goal or the end that all words and descriptions and laws are meant to bring us unto 
But the human heart will cling to that veil, will hold that veil, and when God starts to rend that veil in us, we'll sew it back up. We will see only the figures. We will see only the descriptions. We'll try to apply those things to our life rather than step past that veil in our hearts and live in a, in a light that says that there, you have no life but Christ. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. See, that's what we refuse. That's at the heart of the, that's at the heart of, of religious, uh, thinking. Is that I have a life that I can live in a way that is wise, in a way that is good, that is according to the law. When the law actually is, through the law, I died to the law. Paul says that I've been crucified with Christ. So that's what Paul's getting at here. I say all that kind of to introduce Paul's, uh, maybe, maybe having said some of that, we can read these few verses here in 2 Corinthians 3, starting in um, 12, where Paul says, Therefore, since we have such expectation, we use boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end, that is to say, at the at the... It's the substance. It's the, it's the thing where the, you know, where, where in Romans 10.4, um, Christ is called the end of the law. Remember that verse? Yeah, let me go back a little bit here. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God, to, to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's the substance. He's the thing to which you arrive. You see what I'm saying? He's the... It it says... uh, I mean, it says outcome, some, goal, fulfillment. Uh, Those are some of the... Uh, words that it, that it pops up here when I click on it. He is the substance. He's the thing to which the law pointed. He's the, he's the consummation. He's the reality of all the righteousness of the law to everyone who believes. And, and, and so he's saying here in, in this verse in Romans chapter 10 that they're not, they're, they're not submitting their selves to the righteousness that is the person of which the law spoke. They're actually trying to apply that law to themselves, seeking to, to, to produce righteousness rather than to submit to the one who is the righteousness of God. You see what he's saying? So Christ, is that sum and substance that <clears throat> that actual the actual possess the possession of the thing that uh, the righteousness of the law speaks of and and yet these Jews clung to the testimony and applied that testimony to themselves you see they clung to this description and and, and applied that description to, to to their own lives rather than and, and they did it very zealously amazingly zealously uh, and, and yet not according to the truth. Because Christ, the very thing that they were claiming and praising, their law, the very thing that they were claiming and saying, uh, that <clears throat> this is, this came to us from God, this is our righteousness, that very law condemned the man that they were trying to apply it to, and pointed to the man that God was trying to give them. And so, that's, well, that's obviously uh, 
a massive, a massive problem for them, but it's the exact same thing that we're doing today. Christ is the substance. He is the, he is the consummation. He is the outcome. He's the goal. He's the fulfillment. He's the finishing. He's the end. He's the, of, of the law of, uh, of, uh, of righteousness. To everyone that experiences the reign of his life, the reign of his grace. Romans chapter 5. The reign of grace. You remember that verse? Let me see if I can flip to it real quick here. I was looking at it earlier tonight. Uh, the law came in so that transgression, I'm in verse 20, Romans 5.20. The law came in so that transgression could would increase. Okay? But... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I really love that. Grace reigning through this nature, righteousness. Grace doesn't just pardon the bad, it reigns in the good. It doesn't just... It doesn't let you continue in sin so that grace abounds, which is what he goes on to say in the next verse. It actually reigns, usurps, puts down, crushes under its feet, reigns in righteousness unto eternal life. All right, so now I didn't get uh, very far in this thing here in Second Corinthians 3 because I got stu- stuck at that word end. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There's so much in this in this little section here. Paul is saying they even as he first of all he's saying we're not going to be like Moses that uh, that is willing to uh, put a veil over that glory. We're, we're not. We're we're just going to declare that glory. We're gonna we're gonna call you unto that glory. We're gonna we're gonna. Tell the whole world that God has taken away the veil, and the only veil that remains is the one that you willingly have over your heart because you don't want to come to see that 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 substance, that face, that the light. As he goes on to say six verses later, the light of the glory of, of God in the face of Jesus Christ, He has been unveiled before all the nations. The righteousness of God has been unveiled, and and we're no longer God is no longer hiding that glory in pictures. In types and shadows. He's no longer hiding the substance behind. He's no longer relating to a people in a covenant of shadows. He's no longer putting a veil before his son's face. He's not doing that. And so Paul is saying, look, we're not like Moses anymore, covering up the, the face, covering up the true substance. We're actually inviting everybody and anybody to, to put the veil away. Since God has rent it from the top to the bottom, then by all means take take the veil off your heart and behold the glory itself. And you have to realize that's what he's go that's what he goes on here to uh to talk about. Second Corinthians four uh, verse three. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. It's not veiled because God is now veiling it. 
by hiding it behind testimonies and pictures and promises and prompt promises and and figures and stories he's not he's not doing that anymore he is he is if the if the gospel's veiled it's veiled to those who are who are veiling it themselves or who have been blinded by well, that's what he goes on to say in whose case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God for we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not a coincidence that Paul mentions the face here uh, in the beginning of 4, when at the end of 3, he's talking about how they would not look at the face of Moses, which was the which was the, the picture, the type and shadow of the face of Christ. They wanted a veil. You see what he's saying? The, the, the Jews then, religious believers now, uh, they, they will not look steadfastly on the substance. Who is the goal of all of the shadows? Who is the substance, the point, the conclusion, the, the fulfillment, the result of all of the things that were pointing to him? They still want a veil over their face. And the glory of Moses' face was a picture of Christ's uh, face shining behind the types and shadows and figures and promises and sacrifices and offering and feasts and all these things that testified of him there was there was a glory there was a greater glory behind the veil now see that veil you see it in the tabernacle again too but it's the same veil it was a veil keeping israel from the substance it was a veil that as hebrews uh, chapter 9 says it was a veil that showed that the way into the most holy place was not yet made manifest until the resurrection of Christ, until the death of Christ, right? And, <clears throat> uh, and, and so that whole covenant was a covenant of shadows. That whole covenant was a covenant of, uh, of a veil. And God for a time related to a people through that veil. And then he removed the veil. And now the only veil that remains, Paul says, is the veil that we willingly put over our face to protect ourselves from that light. And yet, when the heart turns to the Lord, when the heart is willing to see itself and see all things in that light, when the heart is willing to approach the light, to follow the light into the substance, into the face of Christ, then that veil is taken away. And that's the Spirit of God's desire. The Spirit of God desires to take the veil off the heart, having already taken it off of the Son of God. The Spirit of God desires to take that veil off of the human heart to cause all to see the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ. All right? Uh, running out of time here, but let me just uh, let's talk about one more thing here, and, and, and this is in chapter 35. Um I just wanted to mention something that's really interesting here in Exodus 35, and it's about God, how God builds his dwelling place out of willing hearts. Obviously, in, in this story, the the dwelling place of God is natural. It's a, I mean, it's, it's shown to be this, this natural tabernacle that's made of different kinds of skins and, and, 
and gold and wood and all of that. But we know that that tabernacle, the true temple of God, is... Uh, well, what does Paul say? Do you not know that you are the temple of God? You know, we are the house for His glory, and we know that we know that God takes forms from our for from our very souls uh, the the His own temple of glory, the place of His eternal residence, the the place that He has chosen for Himself to dwell. Exodus fifteen seventeen. That's what he makes his people into, the place that he he plants us in him and he chooses to dwell in us. And and yet, the thing that really sticks out to me in this particular scripture here, this whole chapter really, I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'm just going to read a few verses that highlight this, is the necessity, the, the, how do I want to say it? Just the reality that God builds his dwelling place or finds room to dwell or resides in and abides in the the place the heart that is that is willingly given to him um that is the the the, the giving over the willingness of the heart to give itself over to God to be to be reigned in to be ruled over the full surrendering of our entire property, as we were talking about Ananias and Sapphira this morning a little bit, uh, the full rendering of everything that we that we are to be given to him to reign in and to have full occupation over. So that's what, I'm going to read some of these scriptures and see if some of that doesn't stand out to you. Exodus 35, 4. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the, of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin, etc. Um, and then verse 20, and all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came, verse 21, then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all of its service and for holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart. And they brought earrings and nose rings and rings and necklaces and jewelry. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. Verse 26. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun spun yarns of goat's hair. Uh, 29. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded them. I don't know. This, this, uh, this, that's what was really standing out to me in this chapter. Just that some, some people ask me, I always talk about the, the total nothingness and of the Adamic man and the otherness of Christ and how God says that every thought and intention of man's heart is only evil all the time, Genesis 6 5, and how there is not one who does good, not even one, and apart from him we can do no good thing, and all these different things that define the nature and the depravity and, and the darkness of the, of the Adamic man, and, and, and because I talk about that so much, 
uh, a lot of times people ask me, what, what then can Adam do? You know, what, what, are we just helpless and hopeless and nothing can, can be, can be done? Well, I think, I think this verse kind of, <clears throat> in, in my heart at least, kind of answers that question. Adam has nothing good in himself. He's the wrong seed. He's the wrong nature and the wrong kind. He is, Romans chapter 8, enmity with God. His thoughts and deeds are, are evil. He has nothing that can be fixed, nothing to be refined, nothing even to be used. And yet, that nature, well, let me put it this way, that, that nature is totally corrupt, it's fit for death, and yet the human soul can can receive light from God and turn from the one to the other, can receive that invitation, can receive grace, turning in, in whatever measure of light is, is working in us, turning from Adam, turning towards the Lord, following Christ out of the one into the other. In other words, we can have a willing heart. I think that's what we can do. We can, we can't change our can't heart. We can't fix our heart. We can't produce Christ. We can't produce light. We can't, we can't even know what Christ is. We can't be the light. We can't shine light. We can't be life. We can't make life. We can't produce the life that God accepts. The one thing we can do is we, I think we can turn, we, with a willing heart, we can turn to the one who is calling us. We can receive with meekness the implanted word. We can receive the seed as good soil that is being thrown into us. We can, and we can follow it. We can turn to it with a willing heart and let God make us into his own dwelling place. That's what I believe we can do. He, we can let him destroy and cut off everything in the land that is of a contrary seed. That we can do. That doesn't make us having anything in and of ourselves. It makes us willing to let him remove from us everything of ourselves and form in us everything that is him. That I think that man, the, the soul of man was created to be able to be willing for that, to be able to follow him in that way, to be, to be able to turn and embrace light and, and follow it out of darkness into a completely new man. See, I think there's always enough light given to us to experience something of the cross right there. Something cut off and something raised up. Something uh, left behind, something gained. Something counted as loss, something found. Something fleed from, uh, something clung onto. Something we're made free from and, and something we're made free into. I feel like there's always, there's always grace being offered, uh, light being offered that we can, again, we don't produce it, we don't, we're not worthy of it, we can't make it, but we can turn to it, and there it is. And if we follow it, if we keep turning to it, if we keep our hearts turning away from the one and unto the other, then we become, we, with meekness, we receive that implanted word. With hearts like children, we turn unto it then God finds a ground in which he can produce his own seed and bring forth his own fruit, bring forth his own increase. That I think man can do. And I think that is the material, so to speak. That is the, that is the, 
the thing that makes us um, hand over to God uh, that in which he builds his own dwelling place. So, all right, I'll stop with that.